Are you looking for intellectual and personal enrichment, vocational development, or spiritual growth? Atlantic School of Theology offers a range of graduate and diploma programs as well as continuing education events. Learning opportunities via online, hybrid, and on-campus formats are all available, so you can study on campus in Halifax, Nova Scotia, or from anywhere in the world. For more information, visit astheology.ns.ca. Welcome to the Faith Forward podcast series. Faith Forward is a grassroots network dedicated to bringing together leaders of ministry with children, youth, and families for collaboration, resourcing, and inspiration toward innovative theology and practice. Through this series, we'll learn from creative, forward-thinking leaders who are pushing the boundaries and reimagining what it means to follow Jesus' way of love and justice today. Join us as we instigate a revolution of hope in our world. Welcome to a new episode of the Faith Forward podcast. I'm Dave Sinis, and I'm happy that today's episode is sponsored by Atlantic School of Theology, an ecumenical theological school where I happen to teach. I am thrilled today that my guest is Dr. Esser Kim. Esser is a recent graduate of the PhD program at the Toronto School of Theology, where her research focused on youth ministry and religious education. And she recently moved back to South Korea, where she's working at a congregation. Esther, thank you so much for joining us today, and congratulations on completing your PhD. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, yay! Yeah, that's right. I, uh, I was lucky enough to hear you present your very fresh research at uh, a conference um, a couple months ago, and I immediately thought that the Faith Forward podcast listeners need to learn about your work. Um, so let's dive right in um, by... Uh, telling us a little bit about uh, your research. My research is on understanding youth agency and education, the relationship between them. Um, more specific, when I say education, it's more specific youth ministry. And um, I ask like, what cultural values have marginalized youth from ministry? Um, what values and theological concepts need to be addressed in order to construe youth as agents and um, allow space for young people to, to co-lead. Um, and I specifically focus on Korean Canadian youth because um, cultural hybridity runs deep for me and I wanted to lift out the invisible experiences into academic spaces that they're already there but not really represented a lot in, in academia. Um, yeah, so the research examines the Korean Canadian youth's unique position of their betwixt and between, um, which I argue that, that that offers them a vantage point to exercise mm. a transformative agency from within. Right. Well, you say that it's, they're often not represented that kind of um, the hybrid identities are not really represented in academia. I think we could also say they're not really represented in youth ministry as a whole, um, both in, in resources for youth ministry um, uh, in academia, but those in, in congregations as well, and in actually how youth ministry is understood and, and how it's actually done, uh, you know, on the ground in, in a lot of churches. Would you say that's that's true? Oh, yeah, yeah. Not only within churches, but even in their youth ministry, 
itself, they are right. not, I think they're not fairly, um, wow. yeah, represented. So what is the, uh, the relationship then between um, both your, your work in that you, you talk about theological conceptions that are helpful for re, uh, kind of recasting new visions for, for youth and agency, but at the same time, there's this idea that, that you're looking at um, in congregations themselves, right? This isn't just a, a, a hypothetical um, construction or, or idea. You're looking at actual uh, youth and, and how they're represented and understood and, and, and valued um, within their youth ministries in congregations um, themselves. Uh, so, so I love that there's this kind of double side to your research where there's the, the reality of concrete practice and the other side of kind of the, the reconceptualization of abstract theological ideas about youth. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about that? Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, youth is a concept that was like built by society. Right. And, right. And um, at some point, able adults became the norm mm -hmm. and youth ended up intentionally and unintentionally um, understood as like still growing. They're less than adults right. and as delinquent and, and therefore in need of adult um, guidance. Mm -hmm. So it, in churches, it, it plays out like uh, we need to pass down certain faith traditions and not saying that that's wrong, but yeah. um, the way it's done, right. It's, it's like the way um, we approach youth, the way it's, um, exercise in churches it's mm -hmm. like oh we have to make youth or like educate youth to become more mature christians instead mm -hmm. of seeing them as um, christians of today right right i was just listening to something else that was talking about um someone was saying I'm, i've given up on the word grown up to describe myself as an adult because it assumes that you know i've got figured everything figured out and they were talking about it from their adult perspective that it takes the pressure off of themselves mm. um, to, to be a grown up who's got everything figured out. But it also takes the pressure off of young people to, to say, no, no, your job right now is just to grow and just to learn. And, and, and I think that this brings us to a really important part of your research. Um, when, I, when I heard you present it, you talk about this single story of youth ministry as less than. Um, what do you mean by that? What is that single story? So like I said, there is this norm that able adults and everyone is going towards that. And I think the biggest thing that um, plays out in churches is that we call youth the next generation, the future yeah. generation, right? And um, calling young people the next generation, I think at least demonstrates some concerns for youth. Yeah. Um, I guess it's better than like not even acknowledging that they exist, but right, right. It's something. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's something. But I want to like echo all the other scholars who already mentioned this in in, in this podcast that the phrase "next generation" suggests yeah. that their turn will come in the future, right, yeah. rather than now. And as a result, I think the voices of youth um, are generally not heard, not only in the wider church, but as I said, but even in their own youth ministry, right. and this concept of youth are just growing and they're mm -hmm. just becoming, I think um, um, 
development psychology did a fantastic job and it helped mm-hmm. a lot of youth ministers to like give a more age related um, contents mm-hmm. but it also said like able adults are the norm and everyone is less than that yeah you use the word voice there that that youth youth's voices are not heard and i i think that's a really important phrase because to me it's not that they're not using their voices it's that adults aren't hearing them and i think the whole idea of voice is a powerful I mean, in some ways it's a metaphor, but in other ways it's just what is as well. Um, but we could use it as a metaphor for youth ministry in general, right? That youth are exercising their agency. They have their agency, they have their voice, but do we adults actually hear it? Do we mm-hmm. recognize their their agency? It, it just makes me think of, you know, what just in really simplistic terms, this idea that you know, young people, their their role is to hear the voices of adults and mm. learn, as you said, you know, to pass on the faith to the next generation and all that. Um, but their job right now isn't to use their voices. That is going to come when they are fully human and therefore fully adult. In a way, it, 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 in a way it's a lot like uh, we're going back to, to ancient Greece, right? And the adult man is the pinnacle of humanity and everyone else needs to work toward that ideal. Um, it hasn't worked for 2000 years, you know, for thousands of years. And yet we're still, it's still subtly um, creeping into what we're doing uh, and sometimes not so subtly. So, so I really appreciate you, you highlighting that. Are there other ways you've seen it play out in, in churches? Like this idea, you mentioned the, the, the idea of the next generation and the 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 passing on the faith are there other ways you've seen this kind of happen in in youth ministry settings um yeah so one um case that i can think of right now is uh, so i served at a presbyterian church and um as presbyterians we do confirmation which is Mm -hmm. um, we acknowledge that um, youth can uh, make decisions about their faith and they they confess right and then then and then the church congregation welcome them as full church members Mm -hmm. Um, but then it's always an issue like how we're going to do this confirmation worship because um, there's always first generation and second generation who doesn't speak korean enough so even though it's a service where it's like celebrating youth most of the service is done in korean youth are there not understanding anything what's happening and even after that, after that worship, youth are never invited to decision-making tables. They are sent back to the basement where they were yeah. until they reach a certain age. And then then they are allowed to come out of their basement and right. come to the main, main sanctuary, right? Yeah. So I think like little things, understanding youth as like less than, yeah. it's, yeah, it's so prevalent in every phase of churches. That's a really interesting kind of opposing viewpoint in a lot of churches that that you you just identified, right? Like whether it's confirmation or adult baptism, there's often this young adolescent rite of passage. And I grew up in a church that did confirmation as well. So I, I remember hearing about, you know, this is you owning your faith and making a choice and you have the agency to do that. But for a lot of young people, as you said, it's not, does anything really change at the end? You, you do the ceremony, but as you said, you aren't really invited to the, to the table. So they continue to be mm-hmm. marginalized 
in the church. Mm. Um, and kind of staying on that idea of marginalization, you, you actually talk about um, the, the double marginalization of mm. youth in the in your context or the context you were researching in, in Korean Canadian uh, churches. And although focused in that particular context, I think this this has actually a lot to say to youth ministry in many diverse contexts. So can you tell us a little bit about what what the double marginalization of youth is that that you identify? So double marginalization, it also connects with the concept that we understand youth as less than. Um, so at churches, they are not Korean enough, right? Because yeah. um, they think different, not fluent enough in Korean, does not acquire enough Koreanness as the older generation. So they are never Korean enough. Right. Um, but then when they go to school, they're not Canadian enough. Right. So um, I think it becomes a bit trickier for youth to um, distinguish that they experience double marginalization in Canada um, than the States mm. because Canada blankets itself with multiculturalism. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you see a lot of diversity, but do you really experience that diversity? Yeah. So this multicultural paradigm is good, but then it also becomes the very vehicle of racialization and, yeah. and grants people some sort of immunity from um, not talking about marginalization and racism. So, yeah. So like the Anglo-Canadian culture is the core and then other cultures are tolerated. And then it's it's shown in schools also. And so in school curriculums, there is the census done in 2018 by Toronto District School Board. And it mm-hmm. writes that only 29% of students identified themselves as white, which yeah. means 61% um students are different races and 36% of the students identify themselves as uh, as being Asian descent. Okay. But then curriculums, lack of culture variety, there have not been many resources available to inform teachers um, regarding racism or microaggression. And when all this Asian, anti-Asian hate movement occurred, teachers didn't have enough resources to, to deal with it. Canada, we see... Like I said, we see diversity, but we don't really experience diversity. Right. It's very, it's very surface level. Yeah. And yeah, like and we when don't it comes really to... use the word tolerance anymore, but it's not much, <clears throat> excuse me. It's not anything very different than a very blanket to- will tolerate the presence of people who mm. are different. Yeah. And then when it comes to society, like youth are not old enough, right? They're not yeah. adult enough. They're not mature enough. They're just kids and they don't make enough money. Like they don't have the profit. Right. Uh, they don't make profit. So so it keeps going to less than and then they're not being enough. Well, and isn't that kind of how consumer capitalism kind of impinges mm. on this as well, right? Because yeah. as, as uh, some youth I know are in, in some contexts are, major financial contributors to their families but as society as a whole they're seen more as liabilities than assets right people who take resources rather than give resources to the um the all-consuming capitalist machine um so we've been talking about all these different things like marginalization and less than and all these challenging things but but there's so much hope in your work because you have heard the voices of youth as this counter narrative to the less than story and the double marginalization. Um, can you tell us about, about that? How, how, how are the youth themselves actually giving us the 
resources for their empowerment. Like you said before, um, they have been saying, they have been um, mm -hmm. conveying, they have been voicing, they have been talking, right? And yeah. they just clearly say like, oh, our desire, like one of the youth, um, it was Youth Appreciation Sunday, which <laughs> very interesting Sunday. But right, and and I love I love that you use air quotes with, around Youth Appreciation Sunday, which I have to say because viewers can't or viewers <laughs> listeners can't see us. Yeah, Youth Appreciation Sunday. I asked youth like, what do you want to tell the church? And one per, one one of the students were just like, you know what our desire is to not only see adults and parents engaging in youth ministry and mm -hmm. make their contributions to the growth of generations to come, but we want to see spaces created where we can come to serve, worship, and, and do fellowship. They just say it, right? And then also, they're like, when I talk with them, like Bible study, uh, or when I do like theological um talks with them I walk away always like so amazed mm -hmm. thinking like oh yeah I was I was educated to be a theologian right think yeah. as a theologian yeah. so it makes me think in a certain way but then whenever I talk with them it's just it it depends on how you view it it like some people might say like oh they don't know anything but from my perspective right. it's like they know so much and it's like everywhere and so robust Right? And it's a constant reminder for me that, oh, they're living real lives, having real struggles, having like real problems in life. And they're thinking about their faith pretty, pretty seriously. And every time when I talk with them, it's, it's really amazing that you can do profound theological talks with them. Yeah. And, and they are having that really, like you say, it's really serious, but it, lo it looks different than we adults have often been. As whether or not we've gone to seminary or grad school or theological school, um, we we have been taught through sermons and through Bible studies and through what we do at church, the, the language of theology and the grammar of theology, like how we talk about these things. And so we gradually learn this one, I mean, in my context, this one Western way of understanding mm. things even if there might be different competing ideas um and then young people just kind of blow all that stuff out of the water with their very different ways of of making theological meaning and making sense of of god and how god is interacting with them and in their mm. lives and and you're right it really it really is too easy to just say well that's not right or we have to teach them and and, and I wonder if that it almost becomes like a doubling down for some in some contexts that the, the more that they that you use their voices to share their their alternate theological views, mm -hmm. um, the more in some contexts we might be tempted to say, oh, no, we have to correct this and they need to mm -hmm. understand this idea. Um, do they or oh, do yeah. we do we need for them to need to understand it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And adding on to them being different like mm -hmm. contributing something different i think um i also hear um their voices through their silence oh yeah so in north america i think in north american context we're like speaking out is the norm right an active yeah. protest like you have to claim something you have to be active 
um, is valued. And then right. being silent can be seen as um, acquiescent or indifferent. Right. And I think this type of understanding views silence as part of a binary wherein the opposite of silence is sound. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for many Asian Canadian youth, them being silent contribute to the stereotype that um, Asians are relatively quiet and passive. Mm -hmm. And in classrooms, even though um, they, even though a lot of Asians exceed um, average or they achieve more than that, this binary viewpoint of them being silent ascribes them as unintelligent to ethnic minorities, right? Mm. But no sound doesn't mean necessarily mm. that there aren't any stories being told, that they're not saying anything, right? So I think I think um, youth and them being silent is like really connected. And we experience this a lot because youth just shut their do doors behind them and don't want to talk to anybody or like um, they remain silent no matter how hard an adult or a youth pastor try attempts to communicate with them. Yeah. Or they just don't show up when youth are being um, tokenized in churches and all mm -hmm. these types of silence. I think it's also something that youth chooses actively as yeah. agents and they're speaking through that silence. So that reminds me of something um, that I sometimes notice when, when I'm teaching preaching courses. Um, sometimes a student will, will offer a, a sermon and say something really profound and then go to the next point or the next sentence. And I'm always like, slow down, put a pause in there. That silence isn't just emptiness. That is a, like a moment of power to rest on that kind of um, complements what you just said. There is that power in the, in the silence. And, and I think that in the grand scheme of the life of the church, we could draw that, that same parallel in a much bigger way to the, 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 the almost deafening silence sometimes that comes that, that we hear from, from youth. Again, though, if we adults have the, take the time to listen to that silence and not yeah. treat it as that, ah, they're just disgruntled youth or it's a phase or rebellion. Yeah. Cause it, it is really easy to just see it that way. You know, youth, their silence or or what they say um, makes makes us uncomfortable, right? Because it's yeah. it's not it's not what we want to hear sometimes, or it's sometimes too idealistic. Um, so I think uh, we tend to, including me, like keep belittling their experience, like la labeling their silences as being indifferent or their resistance as like risk behavior, right? And their mm. their real lives as like, oh, it shall pass. Like you said, it's just a phase. They will grow yeah. up. So um, I, I appreciate that you said, you know, including yourself. Like I, I, I think that way of myself as well. Like as much as I'm trying to, to work against these, the single story, um, to, to offer counter narratives and to live those, those more life-giving and empowering counter narratives, um, I mess it up all the time because I have been trained to, to think in that single story way and I'm unlearning it. What advice do you have for faith communities, for churches that are looking to, to kind of empower 
young people to to really take the make the effort to listen to their voices um, and learn from the counter narratives that they are offering. I said including me, and I think it's really important to keep reminding ourselves that where we are coming from and then mm. where youth are coming from. What pops up to me too is, so I try to give a lot of power and freedom to youth. And whenever mm -hmm. they come to me and they're like, oh, we have this idea. And the very first instinct is like, oh, it's not going to work because <laughs> right. of yada, 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 right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to work. And then I have to hold back myself like, wait, no, let's, let's hear them out. And then mm -hmm. let's try to try to see it in a different way. So I think youth, they are really good at pushing the boundaries um, and make those like who are on the other end uncomfortable. But mm -hmm. I hope that we don't see this, this as uh, one thing that I want to add here is that we don't see, I hope the church doesn't see this as like either or a power dynamic. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, like, if us adults acknowledge youth agency and give them um, and empower them, it's it's not we are losing our power. Right? Yeah. But I hope that churches can understand uh, that making space for youth also empowers them, um, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to Korean Canadian church. Um, some first generations or some people. Uh, because they are minoritized in the dominant culture, um, right. they find their dignity um, within the church, and oh, yeah. which means um, they can exercise something. They have power right. uh, when they serve church or when they're elders or when they do something at church. For them, it can be threatening mm -hmm. if they have to share that power. Mm -hmm. But I hope that they can see when they share their power and when they make room for youth, they can see like, oh, this can happen. Like minoritized people can exercise their agency. They, they can do something. And, and I, instead of like equating empowering youth and learning from their, their narrative as adults losing their role, yeah, I, I hope that churches can understand that empowering youth challenges the congregation to move um, toward a state of mutuality and interdependency, which can yeah. benefit the whole congregation. And, but it, and it really starts with, with taking the time to listen, to hear yes. voices, to take those voices seriously, and to hear the silence, right? And, and see that as, as um, youth exercising their, their agency as well. Yeah, it's, it's time to acknowledge youth as full agents. And yeah. we are all beings and at the same time becomings not only youth are becomings absolutely thank you so much um for for sharing all of this wisdom um and congratulations again on your newly completed uh phd and uh i, I know you just started in a new role in in a church in in south korea and so i wish you all the best uh, in that role. Um, and thank you for being here today. And I just want to take a, a second to thank again, our sponsor for today's uh, episode, uh, Atlantic School of Theology. Esther, thank you again. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Faith Forward podcast series. 
If you want to learn more from creative thinkers and innovative leaders, be sure to subscribe or visit faith-forward.net.